As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today, we have an important topic. As so often today, we see tragic tales on the news of migrant ships sinking in the Mediterranean. The bodies recovered from the sea and laid out on the beaches paint a terrible picture of the risks that these people are prepared to take to seek asylum or migrate to Europe from the coasts of North Africa and Turkey. But those recovered bodies are only part of the bigger, full picture. In fact, since 2014, 26,377 migrants have been recorded as missing at sea presumed dead. Now, there are various ways that you can pick this topic apart to help understand the context. There is, for example, a long history of migration via the Mediterranean, and human mobility in all directions across the Mediterranean has been recorded for thousands of years. But today, we're looking more broadly at the topic of death at sea to give this modern phenomenon some important historical context. To find out more, I spoke with Dan O'Brien, a historian of undertakers and funerals in 18th century England with a particular interest in death at sea. Dan is a visiting research fellow at the Centre of Death and Society at the University of Bath. And as you will shortly discover, Dan is a man of deep thought and knowledge about the passing of time and the temporary nature of the human condition. If you woke up feeling confident in your place here on Earth, you may very well finish this podcast with an appreciation of our fleeting time here and how our experiences and lives will be remembered by those we leave behind. Let it be celebrated that the Mariner's Mirror podcast makes our listeners appreciate their own mortality. 
As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. And if this is the last podcast I ever publish, then so be it. I would be proud to have spent my last few moments on air with this guest. Here is the fluent, the fascinating and the slightly troubling Dan. Dan, thank you very much for joining me today. Brilliant. Thanks for having me, Sam. So, Death at Sea. Um, I think we'll focus on the Age of Sail to start with. I think it's a fascinating topic. Of, uh, it involves so much expedition and conflict. Mm. Can you just talk a little about the unique, um, the unique experience of sailors during the Age of Sail? I think it's really interesting because during the Age of Sail, there's such uncertainty and there's such promise when people involve themselves in, in nautical travel. Um, you have the opportunity to to make yourself and to further your country. But at the same time, the dangers are immense. And, and one thing I've certainly encountered kind of reading for, for today is that, you know, that there are so many dangers and the people who are involved in these voyages are keenly aware of those dangers as well. And they're very aware of how close they are to death and injury. And it's it's really fascinating because I think in some ways, it's a period where we start to see the world is becoming slightly smaller, but actually there's a sort of a terrifying enormity to the sea at this time. Um, it's full of uncertainties and dangers, um, far more so than the land, which you know many on land who live their whole lives on land would consider you know, 18th century, 17th century England to be a place of, of tremendous dangers um, on the open road. But at sea, there are so many more. And I think it's a place where people, particularly people when they're contemplating their end and they're thinking about their life and what they expect from their life, they are faced by, if anything, the kind of the small size of their own existence in a larger universe and a universe where um, their God, if you like, is very close to them. And it, it's a fascinating space for that reason, I think, because a lot of the, the certainties of life on land are not present. But the people who find themselves in these spaces create a sort of order that yeah. kind of guides them through that, that unknown land. Let's just talk a little about the hazards. Um, this has just sprung into my brain. When mm. I was doing my PhD in the first year, I came across... This is a long, long time ago. I came across some surgeons' journals in the um, in the National Archives, and there are not yes. many of them. There are just a handful of them, and they record accidents at sea. Mm. And I loved it because there were so many of them. You'd think people would be falling from aloft, and yes, there were examples of mm. that. But the amount of sailors that fell down hatchways or dropped cannonballs on their feet well, was another mm. one of my favourites. Um, so anyway, very painful. That probably didn't kill them. It might have broken their ankle. Um, but even just a glimpse at a few of those surgeons' journals made you realise the the dangers. Let's just talk about, let's kind of out, lay them out for our listeners about the dangers mm. of being at sea. I'll start. Um, the dangers of working aloft. There's one for you. Well, working aloft is fantastic. I, I, I think, you know, even in the security of, of the ship itself, you know, the, the dangers of, of disease and contagious yeah. disease and contagious disease that... You know, you might be familiar with from land, but on a ship it can spread quickly and there's a real uncertainty to, you know, who will survive, who won't survive. And of course, the loss of every individual there places further stress on the crew. Um, and then, of course, you've got the dangers from without as well. You know, you have the risk of storms, 
you have the risk of enemy action. And those things are kind of incursive threats that kind of threaten you within the safety of your ship. Um, and then I think there's even smaller things, you know, that there are those kind of everyday accidents that people who are engaged in, in kind of labouring activities face, you know, injuries, which can be quite small, you know, sort of physical injuries, contusions, burns, but things which can cycle out of control um, and become very threatening to a person who's, you know, a long way from, from help and is maybe at the mercy of someone who doesn't have the full breadth of medical experience either. Yeah, it, I, I think if you go on a square rigged ship, even now, it becomes incredibly clear just how dangerous they are. There's a lot of he very heavy stuff going on. The ship then moves in all sorts of different dimensions. And you've also got the world above you. I mean, I walk around, usually there's not much above me. There might be a tree if I'm taking my dog for a walk. But there isn't this kind of colossal um, uh, rigging, which is immensely heavy. And it's populated a lot of the time by people who can drop stuff on you. They can fall. Um, and you know, it's an incredibly dangerous three-dimensional environment. And I think it made people really alert to their to their their fears and their insecurities. Definitely. And I think it... it you know, like you say, there's there's this very immediate threat to people who are on ship of being quite suddenly hit by something or struck by something and, you know, kind of wiped out maybe. If you if someone drops a hammer from height or if someone drops any kind of tool really from height, if you get struck by that, that could be a, a suddenly fatal blow. And that's, you know, that's a lot to think about really. If, you know, if you're yeah. kind of in, if, if those day-to-day -day threats are coming at you from so many different angles, um, and you're in, in a way that kind of makes you very dependent on the people around you you know everyone mm. kind of depends on everyone else to do their bits but when everyone's kind of working when everyone's busy in a, such a three-dimensional environment those risks can become you know greater than the, the mitigations for those risks as well mm. um and i think that that's something which you definitely don't really find on land in this period, you don't find that kind of sudden uncertainty, the feeling that you might suddenly be, you know, wiped out of existence by by something. Because, you know, terrestrial life is quite static in that respect. There's not, like you say, there's not much going on above you. You know, you might have a, a lightning storm or you might have, um, you know, someone might be working on a roof, but those things are quite rare and they're, they're far less certain to happen um, than they would be if you were at sea. Yeah, if you kind of reduce it to the most basic thing, even standing up at sea is dangerous and you can't mm. take it for granted. Um, and there's also this whole question, I was talking about surgeons, but the, the whole questions of, of medicine, of course. I mean, you, you might, as you said, get a burn or a contusion mm. or something, but that might kill you, especially oh, yeah. if you're in the tropics. So you can have a, a very, what, what we would consider a minor ailment, but it, it could spell the end. Definitely. And it's it's one of those those real concerns as well because particularly in in the period that i look at a lot of the medical provision is based around what people themselves buy and bring on the ships as well so you're really at the mercy of what your you know your sort of medical specialist is able to bring on board and and how maybe how survivable some of those things will be as well and how much of them there'll be left if you're traveling long distances so after a time, you know, those those risks can increase. And, you know, like you say, going into the tropics becomes a risk as well. And I think certainly from some of the things I've read, there's there's quite an acute um, awareness that, you know, when you move from one climate to the other, 
those risks can change quite dramatically and you can be quite unprepared for some of the risks which occur when you shift from maybe a familiar climb into a less familiar climb. Um, and that can be quite damaging for a crew if they suddenly lose lots of people, if illness takes hold and it's an unfamiliar or tropical illness that people aren't prepared for. You know, that can, you can start to lose important members of your crew around you and then those risks start to increase as well when the unfamiliar people start taking over those responsibilities. That's interesting. I also suspect it makes it would make the general population who've had more experience of the maritime world than perhaps we do today being more empathetic to those suffering from grief. So mm. more people will have suffered from grief because more people will have known more people who had been at sea. It seems to have been something that we've now grown out of. Do you agree with that? I think so. I, I, I think there's a, you know, there's certainly a, a sense that these are people who understand, you know, a shared sense of loss and a sense of the the precarity that comes with, um, you know, ever present death and, and the risk of ever present death. And I think, in a way, traditionally maybe there was a sense that when people experience death frequently, it makes them sort of hardened to death. But I think the reality is, yeah, that these people. Um, in fact, have a keener sense of that loss, and they have a very personal sense of the loss of others as well through their own experiences, whether that's seeing people on board the ship who they know who died, or whether it's families on land who you know who know of, of friends or family members who've passed as well. There's a sense that it's almost like a shared community. It's a very broad kind of shared community of people who have that same shared experience whether it's you know transferred through written or spoken means or even through memorials as well i think those memorials are fascinating we'll talk about them in a minute um okay let's look at practicalities how was a dead body disposed of at sea okay so the disposal of a dead body is is one of the really interesting differences between death on land and death at sea because the disposal of a dead body at sea has a lot of similarities with the disposal of a body on land, but there are some really interesting points of difference as well, which are kind of uh, a consequence, if you will, of the, the very unusual nature of burial at sea. So when someone dies, the body is prepared, and this takes a fairly traditional form in the period. The body, if there's time, will be washed and, and cleaned, um, usually by members of the dead person's close community. And that, again, is quite a traditional aspect of um, people's preparations for death on land and at sea. After that, the body will then be kind of enshrouded, usually with the assistance of a sailmaker, and they will sew the body into um, essentially like a big wrapping or a shroud made of canvas. Um, and this is the really interesting point where the, the kind of the final stitch comes in, which is the slightly um, questionable um, issue of whether or not the very final most stitch on the shroud passes through the nose of the deceased. Um, I've never actually come across any evidence for that in the 18th century. Um, I've heard of cases from the 19th century where allegedly that happened. I can see the merit of such an action potentially because it's a way maybe of checking that the dead person is really dead. But then I've also encountered sources from the 17th and 18th century where people were quite clearly alive, who kind of at the very last minute kind of announced that they were, you know, that they were actually not dead. So they clearly hadn't had this done to them. So I think maybe it's one of those myths. But I think what it encapsulates is that moment of closing up, that moment of sealing off. And of course, 
when you're being buried at sea, unless you're a very high status member of the crew, the likelihood is that you will be buried and shrouded in canvas. And that's quite a difference to a land burial in this period where people would expect in the 18th century, the late 17th century even, to be buried within a coffin. So you'd be in the kind of cosy, very um, concealing confines of a wooden coffin. But at sea, you're, you're wrapped in the shroud. And of course, when you're wrapped in the shroud, you have some shot placed in there as well. That very practically is to ensure that the body sinks and goes to the, the ocean floor. So at that point, you've kind of prepared the body. You've got it ready, you've got the shot in, you've got it sealed up. The hope is that this um, is going to be enough to ensure that you kind of maintain the dignity of the body and that everything stays intact and sinks out of sight. When the funeral happens, the funeral... Can I just come in there? I oh, just yes. That's an interesting point. Why did it matter that everything was out of sight? Why, didn't, why did they have to sink to the ocean floor? It's quite, in a way, it's, it seems to be a fairly important aspect of ensuring that there is separation between the, the dead and the living. And the hope that by placing the body into the sea, weighted and allowing it to sink all the way to the bottom, it won't float. It won't kind of exist anywhere on the surface. It, kind of, it won't return to the surface because there is this fear, you see, that accompanies um, burial at sea that if it's not conducted properly, there may be supernatural consequences, that there may be um, risks faced by the members of the crew for improperly burying uh, a member of their community. And it's quite interesting because when we see um, examples of sea burial where it goes wrong, that moment where the body lingers on the surface is viewed rather negatively. You know, it's viewed as being a rather um, unpleasant or um, kind of confrontational moment between the dead body and the crew where they're kind of faced with their own failure to dispose of it properly to create that boundary between them because was boundaries in the 18th century are quite important um, and the 17th too the idea that once the dead body is buried that it's separated from the living now that's very easy to achieve in a land burial because the, the coffinated body is placed in the ground and earth is placed on top of it and that kind of boundary between the living and the dead is closed. At sea it's far harder, it's far less certain because the sea itself has a degree of liminality to it. It's kind of a permeable space where things can go in and come back out again. So by hoping to ensure that that body sinks all the way down, you can do as much as you possibly can to ensure that separation between. Now, there is a really interesting account um, from a Dutch traveller who sailed with the Dutch East India Company. And what was quite interesting about his experience was that he witnessed a sea burial where things did go rather wrong. And the mm. body... Um, once it was kind of tossed into the sea, lowered into the sea, if you will, um, didn't sink, it floats. And when it floats, the members of the crew who are with him watch the body and they start to discuss what the body's doing. They become rather curious about whether or not the body is continually facing east when it floats in the water, um, with the sense that maybe bodies placed in the sea kind of almost instinctively face towards the east as in an appropriate Christian burial. Um, What's really interesting about that is their curiosity reaches the level of some of them kind of taking a pole and poking the body 
to see how it moves and to see whether it corrects its course and then floats with its head facing towards the east again. I think this is really interesting because it highlights two things. One, this sense that the sea is an unusual space and that we can view the sea unfavourably as a permeable and dangerous place where the living can be attacked by the dead who can't be kind of kept from them. Um, but we can also view the sea as essentially a, a sort of enormous burial ground where the souls of the dead can you know, live across an enormous space, you know, uncontained by soil. Um, so maybe it's this kind of idealised burial space. But I think more curiously, the sense that these men can tell where the head of the body is gives a sense that you know, when you've got this enshrouded body, you can still kind of discern the human form. It still has a level of humanity to it that a body in a coffin doesn't have. You know, a body in a coffin has a sort of avatar-like quality where it's kind of reduced to the very inhuman form of the coffin. Um, and that kind of becomes the closest we get to, to contact with the dead individual. But with this enshrouded corpse, um, the people can see where the head is and they can start to think about it as still existing as a body. Mm. And I think it's, it's quite a sort of macabre curious thing that these people on the ship are starting to think about, you know, what it's doing and what that means. And, and in a way, because they're interacting with this pole and sort of prodding it, they haven't quite separated themselves from it as a member of their crew. They haven't quite released it to the deep. It kind of lingers there uncertainly. Um, as a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. 
It's interesting because you could you could quite easily turn a human shaped body in a wrapped in a sail into a non human shaped body wrapped in a sail by stuffing it with stuff or putting some planks in. It it's um you you definitely could make it more have it more coffin like, but they obviously chose not to do that, which is quite an interesting point. Mm. Well, there are there are it's interesting. There are some accounts of people trying to do that, trying to kind of stuff other items into to sort of confuse the form of the body. But mm. I think for the most part, what we're encountering is um, is a body which is quite similar to the sort of the pre-coffin burial forms, where um, certainly in the medieval and the the early early modern, sort of into the the seventeenth century at the beginning you have those enshrouded burials on land where it's quite clear that there is a human form being buried in the ground. And that kind of keeps people closer to to the presence of the dead um, alongside them. Um, mm. Now, it's interesting because, of course, when we, when we have that moment of burial, the moment of burial has a ceremony around it which assumes quite a similar form to the land-based funeral. So, you know, when we're thinking about all these differences between burial at sea and burial on land, the actual funeral service itself has a lot of similarities. There's an encounter between the individual assuming the role of minister and the corpse, as you would have at the entrance to the churchyard. You have that moment where the people are summoned by bells or guns. And again, that's quite similar to how the tolling of the bell in the land-based funeral calls those people to the service and marks that moment of, of the funeral's beginning and kind of the separation between the moment before the funeral and the time of the funeral and then the moment after the funeral again. That way of kind of creating different boundaries between um, the living and the dead. And then again, we have the, the Book of Common Prayer. And the Book of Common Prayer, uh, the, the reading that you use for a sea burial is almost identical to the land burial, except when it talks about, you know, placing the dead into the ground. Here you have a placing the dead into the sea and the sense that this individual will, much as the, the dead go into the land until the day of judgment, this individual will go into the sea until the, the day when the dead are called from the sea at the last judgment. So it tries to create these kind of curious similarities at the same time between land burial and sea burial. Um, and I think it's an interesting way of maybe in some rather distant ways, kind of trying to organise and order that moment of burial to give it a sense of, of form and structure. Um, even if some of the events before that, you know, before the burial and indeed after the burial can be very um, uncertain. And those are the moments where we see folklore kind of creeping in and this, you know, the sense of, creating those boundaries, the, the penalties for not creating those boundaries and, and the other things that attend that. Tell me about how deaths at sea were memorialised. So the memorialisation of death at sea is, um, is an interesting aspect because one of the key things with the sea is, you know, if we think about the sea as a, as a burial space, probably the greatest difference between the sea as a burial space and the land as a burial space is the inability to place a marker where the deceased has been buried. And this is, in the 18th century, as we go into the 19th century, this is really important because up until the sort of mid to late 18th century, people aren't really memorialising their dead on land in, um, in a widespread way. 
there's not the same culture of memorialization we might be familiar with you know in, in the, like, sort of the, the main 19th century um, but people start to to memorialize their dead online and when they do it creates that point of separation between burial at sea and burial on land because the expectation arises that people who are buried on land will be buried in perpetuity that they will be placed in their graves and they will remain in those graves forever so quite often perpetuity isn't entirely promised, but it's expected. And I think expectation here becomes slightly more important than practice because people believe that, you know, if you're placed in the ground, if your remains are intact, then that's where you will be on the day of judgment. And that's essentially the sign that your relatives have done the right thing. They've placed you, they've buried you, they've memorialised you. But the memorial is also really important because it creates a space where you can be visited where you can be remembered and that your individual name your identity some of the things that made you important can be recalled by family members and it kind of creates the opportunity after you died for repeated contact with you so people can come back to where you are they can talk to you they can you know lay like memorial items for you they can remember but at sea that's not possible so you have to create those proxies and this sort of proxy memorials that occur tend to be restricted to people of, of greater means of higher status. Now, in the Atlantic community, America and, and to a lesser extent in England, there are some attempts by people to add the people who die at sea onto the existing memorials of those buried on land. So when the opportunity presents itself, a name will be included on a headstone. It will be kind of included amongst that list of the family dead in a family plot. But I think what's really interesting is that for the people of great status, um, you know, for those kind of you know, great military leaders who die at sea, um, there's a lot of memorialization. And the memorialization kind of encapsulates that desire both to remember the deceased, to advance the claims of the nation, but also at the same time to retell the story of the moment when they died and to retell the, the kind of the story of the, the moment where they defined themselves, which is usually that same event where they died. And I think it's really interesting. I, I kind of I came across a couple of good examples quite recently in Westminster Abbey. Ah, I was are, going to say, I, yeah. <laughs> I was literally about to interrupt. Um, I wrote a book on uh, the glorious 1st of June, a battle called the glorious 1st of June. Mm. And, I, and I didn't know what, how I was going to begin it. And then I was weirdly visiting Westminster Abbey. And um, uh, I'm just going to jump in here. Sorry, I don't want to steal your thunder. But, um, nowadays, if you go into Westminster Abbey, you go in through the north door or the east you go in through you basically don't go in through the massive west door okay um you go out that way or the way that was the way i was taken but if you i then turned around went back in i pretended i was going into westminster abbey the way you're supposed to go into westminster abbey which is through the enormous west, um, west door and if you go in through that door the first thing you see I can't remember now, it's on the left or on the right, but it's literally by the front door of one of the most important churches in the country is a memorial to a sailor who died at the glorious 1st of June. It is it is the most important place uh, in Westminster Abbey. I think it's by the door. Uh, everyone sees it. It's where you'd put your, you know, your wellies and your walking sticks if you were in your house. But it's just it's just there. It's fantastic. Anyway, everyone should go to Westminster Abbey, uh, which is full of, of um, maritime memorials. But have a look particularly at the one on the, on the west door. I think it's by, on the left. 
left as you go in. Anyway, I've stolen your thunder. You carry on. Tell me about Westminster Abbey. I, I, I would I would highly endorse it for that reason. I was I was astonished actually myself. I because I I think I've always I've always sort of cultivated this sense that St Paul's is the kind of the pantheon of national heroes and such. But you know, with Nelson being below the floor and all that. But um, but yeah, Westminster Abbey has this fantastic collection of of very um, vivid memorials to people who've died um, often rather suddenly at sea or, or possibly rather ingloriously at sea in moments of, of kind of national celebration and glory. And I think what's, what's really interesting about them as structures is the way that they combine um, both the figurative language of kind of memory and triumph. You know, that you have Britannia, for example, um, you have Fame, the figure with a trumpet who kind of appears quite frequently on these memorials. And then you also have these very vivid depictions of the naval encounters themselves, and sometimes even depictions of the ships which these individuals served on. Um, so I think probably the the one that came to mind most was the, the Three Captains Memorial. And the Three Captains Memorial, you know, have you have this fantastic kind of um triangular structure to it where it has this it has a great sort of height and it has is populated by many many figures um and it's quite interesting because actually on it you know the, the three captains themselves what, who are they what does it relate to give us a time okay, period so if i um the three captains memorial remembers uh, william blair william bain and lord robert manners and they all die in the battle of the saints or as a result of the battle of the saints so, this so is, we're um, talking about the american revolutionary war 1780s yeah yeah so this is so it's in, in essence it's a very um significant battle it's a very great british triumph um but these three individuals have died so the monument kind of achieves that level of expectation you know, it presents us with um a series of different figures kind of arranged in this kind of very dramatic triangular form with fame at the very top with these kind of giant uh, wings looking a bit like an angel with a trumpet and then below you have Britannia with a lion and you have Neptune with I, I believe what is intended to be a seahorse but it looks more like a kind of a, just like a giant horse in the water it's, it's a very dramatic scene um, again populated by these very kind of boldly kind of figurative characters you know characters that aren't really you know features of real life within the memorial the captains themselves are reduced to these three rather fashionable looking cameo pieces um presenting their heads um and giving a sense of who they were maybe as individuals but in a very kind of distant way and behind each one of these we have the ships that they served on as well so we have a sense with these men that these are you know, these are individuals who died, but actually we get a sense that they are kind of placed within this wider narrative, not necessarily about death or about suffering or about hardship, um, which are the things that we, you know, narratives we, we find, you know, that people talk about the sea as a place of uncertainty and, and, and kind of suffering. But here we have essentially a very triumphal image of these three individuals. Um, but with a constant reminder that these were people who served on these ships, you know, that these ships are at the heart of, the, of their story. And it's, it's quite an interesting memorial because it's, you know, I, don't, I think if you, if you didn't fully know who they were, you wouldn't necessarily know that it was a naval memorial. Mm. Um, 
it kind of warrants a closer look. But when you do look closer, there's this really sort of rich visual language. Um, and you do see kind of motifs of ships um, appearing quite frequently in memorials, um, often as reminders of vessels that people have served on, uh, as a very visual kind of reminder of maybe an experience and a service that was quite separate to land, quite separate to the audience who might be looking at these scenes. Um, and that's quite, that's a nice one to start with, because again, there's a tremendous scale to it as well. And I think it's, it's quite imposing, but it's, it's interesting how within the memorial, we have a sense that these people did something really good and really profitable for their nation, even if their end, you know, was maybe slightly less than, than, um, than that. So we've got um, just a, a, a memorial here. We're talking about a memorial at Westminster Abbey. So, you know, very high status, very important. Lots of people have seen it. I just want to contrast this with um, uh, contemporary death at sea. Now, I, mm. I spent quite a lot of time in Cornwall. And on the cliffs in Cornwall, you will often find right at the end a little uh, crucifix, perhaps uh, memorialising um, maybe a fisherman, maybe someone who died in the sea swimming, you know, that kind of tragedy. Mm. Has anyone looked at the kind of the modern material culture of death at sea? I've not come across much, actually. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, the idea of kind of commemorating people within that kind of littoral space, actually, you yeah. know, commemorating them near the sea, because there is a lot of research into... Um, people attempting to memorialise or mark a place where someone has died. Because traditionally, memorial structures are placed um, within a burial ground. But obviously, when you die at sea, your body is kind of potentially, if you're lost at sea, your body is, is separated from the land. So there's no immediate place to memorialise you. So you, you know, I suppose there's an urgency to memorialise the place or near to the place where you died. Um, and it's... It's interesting because a lot of the, the writing about, um, for example, the places where people who are killed in road accidents are, are commemorated, those kind of spontaneous memorials. Um, and, you know, they're very interesting structures because often the place that they memorialise is a place that was significant to that person's life in as much as it's the place where their life ended and often where their life ended quite suddenly. And that can be an attempt for the bereaved people to engage with you know the deceased individual in some way to recognize that kind of the rest of a life that was stolen from them or a life that was suddenly cut short in a space because i think and this kind of applies even to the, the 18th century there's an expectation that you know people will live long and happy lives you know long and fulfilled lives and often with these sudden deaths they challenge that you know the the spontaneity of them the uncertainty of 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 why they happened or, or where they happened even um starts to kind of pose questions for the bereaved and often a way to answer that is to to engage kind of take some agency over the space where that individual died um mm. Well, this is all fascinating stuff. Um, I think I could speak to you for hours. Um, in fact, uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to suggest that you come back on the podcast. And um, you did mention Nelson being buried under the floor of St. Paul's. I think yes. we should have another episode on. We'll talk about heroic death and tragic death and St. Paul's and Nelson. We'll release it around the time of Trafalgar. How about that? Um, thank you very much for your time, Dan. I think it was fascinating. And I look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you very much, Sam.
Well, I hope you all enjoyed that. It's time to get out and go for a walk and feel the wind in your hair, I suspect. I would recommend you all to follow Dan on Twitter. His feed is absolutely brilliant. He is at Dr. Dan underscore O. I particularly enjoyed his latest quote from an artefact in the British Museum. Many are the days of darkness. If you're interested in such creepy things, then also make sure you head over to the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube page where you can see a fabulous video we have made using artificial intelligence to recreate Nelson's face from a plaster cast made not after his death, as you might suspect, but when he was very much alive. You will also find there many other fabulous things. There's much more on its way. I am, as we speak, about to edit an animation of the patented Wastony Smith stockless anchor design, and fabulous it is too. I'm also about to speak with the designer's great-granddaughter, who has quite a bit to say about her fabulous relative. So do expect some detailed geeky anchor tech discussions coming your way on the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Please also remember to tell everyone you know about the podcast. It's how we grow, how we meet the challenge we've set ourselves of teaching the world about the importance of maritime history. The podcast itself is only one part. The bigger part is you. Please do all you can to spread the word. Remember also that the podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation. Please check out the Lloyd's Register Foundation's latest brilliant project, Maritime Innovation in Miniature. Just Google it. That's Maritime Innovation in Miniature. And you will find the world's best ship models filmed with the very latest camera technology. It's mind-blowing. Uh, please also join the Society for Nautical Research. You can do that at snr.org.uk. It's a great way of learning about the maritime past, of meeting like-minded people. I can't recommend it highly enough. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 